Hello there. My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. When I first started my angling career back in the 1960s, national records stood out as a beacon of ambition and achievement. Most anglers back then were aware of them, and if not the actual weights themselves, then certainly the status, and to become a record holder was something most of us would dream about perhaps becoming one day. But unfortunately, in 2013, many would argue that now the reverse is true. The value, status and importance of record fish has certainly diminished, and to many serious specimen hunters, who are after all the most likely candidates to catch records of a certain species, it seems to become a complete irrelevance. The reasons why attitudes change in respect of previously strongly held views are often complex, and in no way can we or should we expect to cover all of them here. All any of us can do is highlight some of the possible reasons, and ask the question why. And to answer that single word question, which will crop up time and again across a broad range of unresolved problem areas, representing the British Record Fish Committee here is its chairman Mike Healing. Now I know as much as anyone else that you would love to see the committee and its procedures modernised and re-established as a beacon once more in the eyes of those it purports to represent, the British angling public. The committee, like all committees, is slow to change because it's a bunch of individuals. My personal view is that there are loads of issues we need to address and we need to modernise, not the least of which is the requirement to weigh fish on land and I think we've uh, with sea specimens particularly we've got to move towards a time when we're using formula to generate a record estimated weight. The problem will be that lots of claims come in that are only a few ounces over the existing record even with sea fish we've got a situation with a short cork tope at the moment which is six ounces, claimed at six ounces over the existing record. I can't go into the details of that claim for obvious reasons because it's you know still being considered by the committee and we're waiting for the applications to come in. But if that had been caught on a boat, only a variation of six ounces in, in the size of the fish makes it very difficult without actually seeing the fish itself and weighing it on land. There are a number of questions. I think we've speeded up the process by which we handle claims. It used to be done at two meetings a year, one in June and one in December, and all the claims came before the committee then. And if there were questions then raised, of course the the whole process was delayed then until the next meeting, six months away, which is frankly is madness. So now that the Angling Trust, through Nick, have taken over the Secretariat of the British Record Fish Committee, we're now handling claims electronically around the committee using email, email attachments, sending photographs out. The original or the original file for the photographs is logged with us. And if there's any questions about identification with sea fish particularly, the specimen is often sent to the Natural History Museum, which is the final arbiter in what species a fish is and has worked with the Record Fish Committee for a number of years. Let's now start to look at the structure of the organisation itself. The British Record Fish Committee represents anglers throughout the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and has representation on it by the Irish, the Welsh and the Scots, but not for some reason specifically the English. We must compete with the other three countries for our place in the British list while they have their own records and at the same time can share in the overall list. Why then is there not a separate English record list? Because there's never been, until recently, a single organisation to run a record list. It was only with the establishment of the Angling Trust that we got that single representative body for England. The previous structure, I don't know why it was always the British Record Fish Committee. I assume, and I may be right or wrong, but I assume it's much more to do with the way the country, the nation, was governed in the 30s, 40s and 50s in the last century than dealing with the situation we now face in the 21st century. In reality, nearly every fish on the British list will also feature on the English list. 
the exception that they will be some sea species which are now being caught around the Channel Islands and have not yet arrived in English waters, and certain salmon. The lack of an English list simply reflects the political reality of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Why would the English need their own list when plainly the Scots, Welsh and Irish in another century were subservient to the English in the structures that govern them? That's all changed in the last 20 years. The individual nations other than England all have their own lists. The islands around the British Isles have their own lists. For some reason the English have never done it. I'm not minded for the BRFC to run an English list, but I know that within the Angling Trust there are moves to consider record-keeping of English fish caught in English waters. So I think that's something that will happen in time. The Angling Trust is now four years old. It's still very early in its development. It's still a young organisation. There's a whole raft of agendas that it needs to run and they'll be taken as the funds become available and as people in the trust get interested in those specific areas. So I think an English list is something that may well happen at some stage in the future. It may well be assisted by the British Record Fish Committee. But at the moment, we're not having that conversation. So there is no English-only list, but I think that's something that will come in time. Next question up is the one which rattled your cage when I emailed the list through to you, if you recall. Oh, yeah, the English question. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> but I'm still going to ask it anyway, if only to let you shoot it down. No, no, that's fine. When I was reading these questions, you see, it was really interesting because I suddenly thought, that's interesting, I just never thought about that. And I suppose it's because I'm half Irish and these things have never occurred to me. So the questions, I mean, I actually found this a really useful exercise because the questions made me think anew about a lot of things that I'm sure me and maybe lots of other anglers have always just accepted as the way things are. And of course the way things are isn't necessarily the way they should be. So this has been a really good exercise for me because it's exercised the brain into making me really consider where we're going with stuff. The Irish Record Fish Committee takes claims from the entire island of Ireland, both the Republic and Ulster. Yet the British Committee also includes Ulster. That being the case, potentially one fish can hold two different national records. Yes, that's right, as it could in Scotland or Wales. This is sort of, I don't know, I'd, I originally said this was a very English question and insulted Irishman, but I'm not sure that actually with hindsight it does. I'm not qualified to talk about the separate Irish record list. I think when you look at the publications they produce each year in Ireland for both their record fish and their notable fish, that frankly they're awesome. I mean, I, I imagine they must be sponsored because it's a full colour 64 page booklet that's produced annually and it's really very complete and I'm quite jealous of it and the ability to produce something like that given the, the limited resources the British Record Fish Committee works with. The Irish do fish as a nation. There are some issues still around the North fishing as part of the island of Ireland. For historic reasons they're quite sensitive some of those issues. There is pressure from within Northern Ireland for them to be treated as a separate nation outside Ireland. But I think one of the strengths of Irish fishing is that they have a united list and just as they play rugby for Ireland and not along sectarian or political lines, so they fish for Ireland. Uh, and I, th I think that's a great strength for the future and it's, it's indicative of, I think, where Ireland is probably going politically and socially in the longer term. Maybe not this century, but I think there, you know, there will be significant changes there in years to come. The Scots and Welsh can also hold national records and a British record for the same fish. And as it happens, I mean, regarding the Irish, we've started to have conversations with the Irish about making the British list a British Isles list so that it incorporates all of the islands of this group of islands off the west coast of Europe. 
it's early days yet and some of our colleagues in Ireland are very keen that it should happen but there are a lot of sensitivities around that and I've said to them that out the door of the British Record Fish Committee is open to proposals to come forth from Ireland about a combined Ireland group list but we will leave it in their hands to decide when and if they want to make that move. I think it's worthwhile maintaining country records lists alongside the the British record list because local anglers will set their targets against local fish. You can get large bass in the southern half of England but at the moment bass are relatively rare in the northern half of England and up around Scotland. You've got the same issue with Irish tench. Irish tench are significantly smaller at the moment than some English tench, the the English record tench. So an Irishman fishing for tench in Ireland against the British list would struggle to get a significant percentage. But against the Irish list, he could well be catching 80 or 90% of the record or even beating the record. So I think records fulfil lots of functions. They are a target for people who are keen on catching larger fish. To, to They target percentages and that's part of their measure of their success of an angler. And also they are historic records of the size fish grow to. I think country lists are every bit as important as the what is effectively an international list, the British list, because we've got the size this fish grows to in these islands and then the size this fish grows to in each of the member states of these islands. And I think that's quite an important thing that we should maintain and work towards. Well, I personally would like to see all islands records displayed in a single list. That's exactly my view. And, I mean, I, I have a bit of an issue with association football being played north and south and that's a historic thing as I say rugby football has always been played as they play as one nation and on only very very few occasions has there been an issue about the north-south divide and I think most people living in the island of Ireland see themselves as Irish and I think in time, this this is one of those generational changes. It may take four or five generations for those that don't see themselves necessarily as being Irish to finally feel that it is their home and it's their place and it's the island of Ireland. But I mean, that's all deep politics and it's really outside fishing. But I do think angling organisations need to be aware of those sensitivities as we seek to change and move into the 21st century in a meaningful way. I think that where I was coming from, that while a Scottish or a Welsh record can also hold a British record, both those countries are a part of the UK. My issue with the Irish situation was that a fish from Northern Ireland could also hold the record in two completely separate countries. Historically, Britain was all of these islands in this part of the northeast Atlantic off the western coast of Europe. In 1922, the position of Ireland and the structure of the concept of British changed fairly dramatically with the Republic being declared. I don't think angling ever addressed that question. It sort of avoided the issue because it was easier to avoid it than get involved in it. But the The committee is still the British Record Fish Committee. That has come to mean, in modern-day parlance, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, because they are still subject to the British Crown. But there's confusion there about the political concept of British and the geographic concept of British. I tend to think of British in a geographic concept that if we come from this group of islands we are British people that is not the same as we are English I'm half English half Irish I am very much British and if I'm you know if I'm signing in and ask for my nationality anywhere I always list my nationality as British because I have a foot in both camps 
you have social references as well as political references in both countries. And I think for lots of people living in these islands, they come from an English father married to a Scottish woman or a Welsh woman or an Irish woman or, or the converse. And many of us have these mixed backgrounds in our families. And we are truly British. The number of purebred long-term Scots, English, Welsh and Irish is actually relatively small. So I've tried to avoid the difficult politics of it. I'm trying to create open doors that enable us to be working with our colleagues in what are now other nation states as opposed to being part of the old British Empire so that we can either define that the British Record Fish Committee covers Wales, Scotland and England, or that it works across all of the islands, including the island of Ireland, and we have one record list overseeing the record lists of the nation-states. Necessarily, that means the English will need to generate their own record list in time to come, so that there is equality across the four nations, but I think at that point, you know, if, if that should come about, I think the reality is there may well be somebody still logging records in the north of Ireland, but I don't think in the longer term we would have separate representation from the north of Ireland and from the nation of Ireland. I think we would have representatives from the Irish national fishing community. A further complication coming from the current four nation structure is that records accepted by say the Welsh or the Scottish committees are also automatically submitted for inclusion in the British record list despite the fact that different standards of acceptance might apply. Well each national committee at the moment has its own standards and the records of each are maintained under those standards. The BRFC has its own rules and there are certain differences in approach. At the moment if a Welsh record is submitted for inclusion in the British list, it has to be submitted in terms of the rules that the British Record Fish Committee lays down for claims. If it's submitted outside those rules, then the committee won't and wouldn't consider it. We've got another thing running now, which we've just started, which is the notable fish list. So it could well go onto the notable fish list, but it wouldn't go on as a British record unless it was claimed according to the rules that we set down. But I do hope that over a period of time, all of the national committees and the BRFC will move towards a single set of standards by reaching agreements about the standards we should apply. So far, the BRFC has been more traditional in the way it wants to handle claims than some of the national committees. But I think when you have a chairman that sees the need for change and you start to bring younger anglers on board and a broader cross-section of anglers represented on the committee, then you reach a point where change becomes possible if the committee will agree that those changes are necessary and useful for the future. I don't think it's going to be an easy thing to achieve, but I do think we have to work towards change and we have to try and work towards a cohesive approach between the British Committee and the National Committees. And in part, that's why, since I became chair, I've actively gone out to the nation-states and said... At the moment, the British Record Fish Committee looks, frankly, quite like an English committee with a couple of islands represented. What we want is, even if people can't attend the meetings from Scotland and Wales, they can participate in the work of the committee because we're now working electronically, and therefore the committee becomes more representative of the people of these islands, and therefore it's more likely that the committee will move towards change when those changes are proposed. In terms of how we move that way, my view is that 
we should, as a committee, we should be talking to the nation states, the people keeping their national records, and we should be seeking areas where we can find agreement now, and then setting aside the difficult areas, but down the line, addressing those difficult areas, maybe with a conference advised by scientists about how we can all move together. I mean, I know, for example, that on the Isle of Man, the body of the fish is still required. Now, in England, or in, on the British Committee, we're still insisting on the body of some species being required, because without actually doing a post-mortem, you can't absolutely determine the species of some sea fish. There's a big question about smooth hounds. There's a claim in Ireland that the only smooth hounds around the UK are starry smooth hounds. Well, that's quite an interesting claim in itself because our scientists are telling us that's not right, that there are definitely starry and ordinary smooth hounds swimming around the east coast of England. That's why we still maintain two records. The skate record used to be two different records for skate, and the scientific definition was changed at some point, and it became a single skate record. But actually... The fish that now holds the record is a flapper skate. And I think the scientific definition of skate will in time go back to there being two separate species and will go back to having two separate records. And it's because the scientific community have been reprogramming the family structures of species quite extensively in the last 20 years a lot of this is in constant change and it's actually quite hard to keep up with it for that sort of work we rely absolutely on the on the environment agency in england and the natural history museum by talking to the specialists to say well this is what we think but what do you advise as scientists what do you think we should do with the species we're looking at but defining species defining acceptable methods of assessment if you're not going to take absolute weights we need to reach agreement on that, and that's going to take quite a lot of work. Looking a little deeper into the rules, which state that all fish must be weighed on firm ground, and to use the committee's own published advice that anglers are recommended not to liberate fish for reasons of positive identification, do you not feel that this has been one of the fundamental reasons why records have become irrelevant to many people, who even when or if they did catch a potential record, in some cases still don't make a claim, as many anglers these days are simply not willing to kill a magnificent fish just to get the name on a record list? Yeah, I think it's a major problem with the modern list, and it's why we started the significant fish list under BRFC, so that anglers can claim a fish at an estimated weight and have it recorded. The killing of fish is now an issue for many more anglers than it was when I was a serious sea angler 20 or 30 years ago. But the problem we face is the identification of particular species of sea fish often requires a post-mortem examination to determine what species it is. It's now only sea fish where we require the body. We used to require the body for all fish, but we've stopped that with coarse fish. And that in itself has caused a problem, because on the coarse fish record size, if you go back over the list, the last record carp was two-tone from Kent, and I don't know, I can't remember how many times it hit the record, but the record moved by two or three ounces over a period of four or five years, and the same fish was subject to, I don't know, maybe ten different claims. Their number's off the top of my head, but it was of that order. Bear in mind, if it swims, I fish for it, so... I don't think of myself as a coarse angler, a game angler or a sea angler. I go fishing. I've always targeted the biggest specimens of a species in the waters that I am fishing. It's just the way I fish. I would have a real issue, and I did have a real issue. The last fish I killed at sea was a 16-pound bass before I knew any better, and many years ago. And the reason I stopped killing fish was I brought that fish home and served it to a dinner party and I cooked it. And I'm a great believer when I serve fish, it comes with a head and tail and the fins are all in place and people know they're eating proper wild food. It's just something I do. And when I served that fish, I looked at it as I took it out of the oven and I thought, Christ, I had no right to kill you. 
because in the water, you've seen bass, you know the colours they exhibit when they're first landed. This was just a grey lump of soggy dead fish. And it was the first fish in my life I ever ate, which was absolutely tasteless, because it stuck in my craw that I had killed that fish. That was the last sea fish I ever killed. I mean, I never killed anything after that. I still take the occasional Xander to the table, because they're a non-native species and we're allowed to. And I do think anglers should have the right to take and keep fish if they so choose. But I do think it's a decision each angler has to make for themselves, because it depends where they are on the sort of scale of angling progression, I guess, as to how they feel about it. But I do think that, particularly with the pressure on sea stocks, and the pressure on some species particularly, the killing of fish is no longer generally acceptable, and that the Record Fish Committee has to address that question. I don't know what the solution will be, I have an opinion as to what it should be, but we have to solve this issue. The problem of identifying fish is a huge issue. We often get claims where the photographs, frankly, are just simply not good enough to get a decent ID. And you get anglers in, particularly in the two weekly papers, who claim they can identify any fish species from a photograph. That may be true for the vast majority of fish, but with coarse fish, when you're dealing with very large specimens of a coarse fish, particularly roach, rudd, crucian carp, there's a lot of opportunity there for hybridisation. And we've started now to use DNA, do scale checks, to check the DNA of coarse fish, to check that they're not a three-way cross or a four-way cross. And it seems incredibly simple from the outside to determine the species of fish. But actually, when you sit on the committee and you are looking at a claim for a nine-pound crucian carp, it's actually quite important that you know it isn't a crucian. And the only way you can sometimes do that is either by having the scale or by having the fish. In terms of sea fish, there are a number of species where the only determinant is to do a post-mortem and do an internal examination of the body of the fish to determine exactly what species it is. So part of the reason the committee has not changed is because of those questions. My view is that we've got to be looking at it almost on a species basis, as for this species we need this to happen, for these species that can happen. And then you can change the way the committee works. And you can also get to the point where it's easier because we're no longer demanding that all fish are required to go to the Natural History Museum for identification, it's easier for the other national committees to become more active in working with us for the sake of our future fish stocks as well as for the sake of future records. So in the instance of sea fish, lots of those fish end up at the Natural History Museum. The, the, the bodies of them end up in the national collection. I think the last three sea records we've adopted, the anglers have actually donated the fish to the Natural History Museum National Collection. Now, yeah, that fish may have died, but actually, when you look at the National Collection, there are fish in that collection that go back nearly 200 years. So, scientifically, that fish has died, but it's adding to the science base of our understanding of both species and sizes and distribution around the British Isles. So, yes, killing a fish is not the best solution for many anglers, but it's not as if we're asking people to kill the fish and just waste it. If it goes into the National Collection, it becomes forever a part of the science that backs up our understanding of what and how these sea species work around our coasts. And it's really important. The reason the Natural History Museum 
works with the British Record Fish Committee is that it gives them access to specimen fish that they wouldn't otherwise get into their collection. And they get an understanding from the applications we get for uh, records of the number of species that are beginning to appear on our coasts and their distribution around the coast. We're not only keeping records for the angling community, but we're helping maintain the science base of our understanding of fish species, which is pretty important in my opinion. The point is though, that some of the weights you list as records are not records at all. They're simply the biggest fish that some angler or other was willing to kill. Does this then not discredit the whole concept of what the committee are purporting to stand for? Well, if, ang if anglers don't claim the record, yes, it does discredit it. But that's why we started the notable fish list, is if anglers don't wish to kill the fish and claim a record, they can submit a claim for the notable fish list, and between the notable fish list and the record list, there will be a record of that fish and its estimated weight, assuming it was an estimated weight rather than weighed. And we've made the rules around notable fish slightly softer than the rules around claiming a record because we, we want to encourage anglers to use the notable fish list. I actually think in time that the notable fish list will become as important as the record fish list, particularly for those species where either the angler is no longer allowed to land them or the angler, because of pressure within the community or his own moral position, has determined that fish shouldn't be killed. So we're trying to create pathways by which the record keeping of the committee is as valuable as the old record list was, but treating the record list in a slightly different way. Genuine sport-minded sea anglers have for many years refused to kill tope, either to weigh them ashore or for purposes of identification. Now you may argue that they don't need to be killed just to be weighed on firm ground. But how do you bring a tope ashore alive from many miles out to sea, besides which, along with certain other species such as common skate and undulate ray, it would now be illegal to do so anyway under recent legislation? So by listing these fish, are you not encouraging anglers to openly flout the law? Well, I don't think so, because under the existing rules, you may not land a tope, and the committee has adopted a view that such species will only be accepted onto the notable fish list in future. So, if you're landing tope at sea, until we get agreement about estimated weights, there won't be a new record boat caught tope landed anywhere, and therefore the record will stay where it is. Any fish bigger than that, I hope we'll go on to the notable fish list and that's the importance of promoting that to the angling community. Sea stocks are under such increasing pressure that e even in the 60s we never landed fish. We caught lots of tope. I went tope fishing on numerous occasions out, out of Essex on, on the Blackwater. But we always tried to unhook them in the water. We didn't even bring them on board the boat to take photographs. We were looking to our future and preserving the stocks we were wanting to catch in years to come. And I was once on a boat when a new record spoothound was taken and she was 12 pounds heavier than what was then the existing record by our estimate. We unhooked her in the water and she was about due to pump and she was released so that she could pump. The list of fish we no longer accept will grow as time goes by and as the committee works its way through the list and determines those fish we're willing to maintain and those which we think should be closed for future records and only accepted onto that notable fish list. And certainly under the rules of the committee, if the law was broken for that fish to be landed, that fish would not be acceptable to the committee under the rules under which claims are made. So we require them to be caught by rod and line angling using legal methods. So if a fish is landed illegally, it can't be subject to a claim to the committee because we'll just immediately reject it. So there's no encouragement to get anglers to act illegally. We're doing our absolute utmost to ensure that anglers comply with the law. But excluding fish which anglers love to catch, and incidentally, legally still can catch, is surely going to alienate people. So what is there then in the pipeline to get around this problem, such as a point system or other form of measurement? Well, I think it has to be using 
the relatively well-established estimating methods of girth and length with the factors applied and using something like that. But again, I know there are members of the committee around me who would support a move in that direction. We've discussed it. God, I can't remember how many times we've discussed it over the last six years. And the committee has always come down on the side of no change. But I don't think that would always be the case. It would be dead easy if I was the chairman and I determined the whole policy. I'd solve the problems overnight. Easy peasy. The reality is that's not how this world works. And you have to work with other people to get a consensus decision. Not always the best and certainly not the fastest way of working. But you do have to work towards change. You have to persuade and carry people with you through the process of change. Some people are really up for change. Some people are very much stuck where they've always been stuck. So we will continue to have those conversations. We're going through a process now of going through all of the lists and determining how we want to present those lists in future, what species we will accept records for, which species we will close the list, which species will only be acceptable onto the significant fish list. And through that process, change will come about. But change will never come about at the speed of the modern world. People nowadays are used to, with electronic media, something arising on a Monday morning and there being a public statement of, of a policy change on the Wednesday. That's fine if you're in government, because you ain't going to be there in five years to have to justify the mistake you just made. But when you're running the Record Fish Committee, people are very conscious that these records are a significant historical document and we need to be careful that in making a change, we don't introduce another unseen problem into the equation. So, necessarily, this is a very conservative, with a small c, group of people working towards change for the future. I regularly use a weight estimation chart for common skate, as do many other people, and while there is the potential for a supposed 5% inaccuracy, at the end of the day it's the same for everyone. But, if you move to weight estimation charts, which can be drawn up from quite a small representative spread using regression analysis to both give and expand a straight line graph from zero all the way beyond the record, unfortunately, to be as accurate as possible, each charter graph must be species specific, which is bound to prove one hell of a big job for somebody, particularly with the rarer species of fish. Yeah, but for many species those estimation charts are there. Part of the argument I hear against making a move to weight estimation charts is that they're not sufficiently well established to accept a fish as a record, which is quite a purist view, but I do think, whether I agree with it or not, it's a valid opinion for a committee member to have. I think there are some species out there where weight estimation charts could be used tomorrow and the record would still be valid in the eyes of the angling community and of anglers. There are other weight estimation charts where, yes, a lot more work would need to be done. But the reality is that work will only get done when there is a need. And this is an opportunity for the British Record Fish Committee to create the need and encourage uh, the whole of the community to work together to start to develop those weight estimation charts. I mean, frankly, the way I see the position of sea stocks at the moment, in 50 years' time, we'll be lucky if there are any record fish being caught because this move to light rock fishing isn't because light rock fishing, it frankly, is great sport for big fish. It's an interesting way of getting your hook pulled by something that otherwise you couldn't catch because there's nothing else in the sea to be catching for a lot of anglers. So you go and catch many species off the rocks. Well, you know, I'm sorry, my sea angling was about something significantly better than that. Through Europe, I'm working hard to try and make sure that our sea stocks not only are maintained, but start to recover to something like what they should be. But weight estimation charts are going to become increasingly important, because sooner or later the committee will have to move to 
records based on scientifically estimated weights for a number of species because internationally the regulation of sea angling is going to get stronger and stronger. I hear all the cries from sea anglers about we don't want a license, we don't want bag limits, we don't want slots for the size of the fish we can take. But if you look from the United Nations downwards, there is an international move to regulate the catching of fish in our seas to try and ensure food security for the future. And that's the principal objective. Is It's about 80% of the world's population is dependent on fish for its primary protein source. So the sea fish are absolutely vital to the future health of the planet. There's an international move to create more control over how fish are extracted from the seas. And inevitably, whether we want it or not, sea anglers are going to become subject to those controls. And as part of those controls... Killing fish for a record is just not going to be on the book, and it's we're going to have to estimate weights. So if it's in my chairmanship, or the next chairmanship, or the chairmanship after that, there will be a change. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to lay the foundation for change to happen as quickly as we can make it happen. But you do, again, I come back to this committee structure. It's a group of individuals, all of whom have an opinion, and you have to reach consensus to be able to move forward on it. Weight, it has to be said, is only one way of expressing the size of a fish. If you take a fish's length and multiply it by its girth at the widest point, you arrive at a score, which is just as representative of a fish's size as its weight. The fatter or longer the fish, the more it would have weighed, and correspondingly, the more points the calculation would give it. So why not, either for a limited list of species anglers cannot or will not kill, or better still, for all species, run a points-based record list in an additional column next to the recording weight for those who feel more comfortable with that. Well, I think that's interesting because in the British Isles we're quite unusual that we weigh fish to record their importance. In nearly every other country that I've fished in, anglers measure the fish for length and that's the basis of their records. And certainly such a system would overcome all the problems of killing fish other than the need to accurately identify the species. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, th- part of what we've done, I think we've been recording weights over a kilo in pounds and weights under a kilo in grams. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I don't understand. But what we've got is what has been developed over a period of time. I'm seeking fairly radical change in how we present our data. Now we've got a permanent secretariat serving the committee, paid for and supported by the Angling Trust. It's much easier to get work done between meetings because we're not only dependent on volunteer help to do it. Now I've got Nick in the office running the secretariat. I can be asking Nick to look at stuff between meetings with a view to making proposals and changes. So it's Getting to change when you sort of become professionalised is significantly easier than getting to change when it's all run by volunteers who do it in their own time, basically. So I think there are opportunities for looking at how the lists are presented and what information is presented on the list. And I certainly think in terms of the significant fish list, then or the notable fish list, we could easily be presenting fish there simply on the basis of their length rather than if you know your previous question asked about the data that's required to work out a weight estimation chart well if you start to measure length and record that the weight estimation chart doesn't need to be there for that species and weight then over a period of time becomes a less significant measure of the size of the fish than the length it has attained. I mean that in itself is not an easy change to implement because lots of anglers here, if you take pike for example, they will say yeah 48 inch pike according to the weight estimates would be such and such a weight but I've seen 40 inch pike that are half the weight you would expect them to be because of the state of some of our waters, where they're older fish, they've reached the length, but they're not maintaining weight. 
So getting anglers to accept length as opposed to weight as a measure for a record will be just as difficult as getting those sort of changes accepted by the committee. But this is about having the conversations, involving the community in those conversations, trying to seek opinions from outside the committee. Actually, even the pressure from the angling media for change, when it's positive in the way it is written, is actually a good way of encouraging change. The problem we have sometimes with the media is that the media comes out, slags the BRFC off, says they don't know what they're doing, and creates a lot of tension that's unnecessary and not very useful. And effectively, what that does with a committee, you get a bunch of blokes sitting in a room who have just been slagged off in the media, they get defensive. And when people are defensive, they're not minded to make change. They're minded to become sort of more manly and show how big they are. And this isn't about the individual members of the committee. This is just the way groups of men work. So positive comment in the media about the need for change, why it should be done and how it can be done is really very useful. Stories that take that same concept and run it in a negative way about the incompetence of the committee really are not helpful because all that does it entrenches people in the position they're in and that makes change a bloody sight harder to achieve and that's about people not understanding that the committee is a body in its own right but it's composed of individuals and each of those individuals reading a negative press story will react in one way but put them together in a room and there will be sort of a group reaction because that's the way groups of people operate. And that is a real issue. And it's the, for me, it's been one of the most difficult things in achieving change, even before I became chairman of the committee, trying to achieve change in the face of quite vitriolic press comment which is not helpful to creating an atmosphere where change is possible. I'm a sort of great believer that I've managed change in businesses nearly all my life. You have to create an atmosphere in any organisation where change is, number one, acceptable for the people that are going to be asked to introduce the changes, where the benefits of change can be seen by a wider community than those taking the decision alone and where the outcome of change can be seen positively for everybody involved in the process. As soon as you get anybody in an organisation that gets vitriolic about change, it makes it much harder to achieve change, simply because somebody is ranting on the sidelines, and other people then start to take hardened positions, rather than being open to change as they previously were. So... The media have a huge part to play in how quickly we can achieve change. They can help us do it very easily. And I'm not saying they should give us an easy time. We need people to be saying, hey, you think you got that wrong. But sometimes the language that's used is frankly pretty insulting to people who are only giving their time up because they think this work is quite important. Actually, and you may well not be aware of this point, but not all the marine fish accepted by the committee despite the apparently strict rules, have complied anyway. During a recorded interview such as this with Bradwell Charter skipper John Rawl, he talks of a stingray record being weighed on his boat and accepted. The current common skate record from Tobermory may well be another example. Yet item 3 of your procedure states that no claim will be accepted unless the committee is satisfied as to species, method of capture and weight. My immediate reaction is it's a shame that John didn't speak to the committee when he knew the Stingray was being submitted. I don't remember the Stingray claim, but the way it works is the person putting the record claim to the committee signs a lot of documents which are effectively legal documents. They would go before court in terms of courts of law. And the veracity of the record... Uh, and its value is dependent on the honesty of the people seeking to claim the fish. We've certainly had the issue with rainbow trout, 
where for a long time the record rainbow trout was listed as having come from one particular water and 10 years after it was listed the angler who had caught it just before he committed suicide admitted to the committee that he'd lied and he'd found the fish dead on the banks of the lake but his witnesses and everybody that had signed the paperwork to support his claim had verified they had seen him hook and land the fish, they'd seen him weigh it, and it had been photographed, and all of that stuff had been done, but actually the fish was dead, and he found it dead, and his mates had sort of colluded with him to lie to the committee. Well, if anglers are willing to go to that length, then I can only assume that's the situation with the stingray, that somebody has lied on their paperwork, then the committee will look at that, I fished with uh, John Rawl and Bob Cox, and it was actually it's one of their trips that we released the record smoothie. But the committee itself is constantly looking back at the list and questioning fish, either for species or for the veracity of the claim, because we are conscious of that. What I will do is I will take John's comments and I'll take them back to Nick, get him to check the stingray file, and we'll have a look at it again. And if it was weighed on the boat and that wasn't declared, then that claim is likely to be taken back off the list. If it was weighed on the boat and it was declared, then I need to look at the file to see why it was accepted, because you're quite right, it shouldn't have been accepted weighed on the boat. Caught by fur angling means is another standard the committee needs to look at. The Irish Record Fish Committee won't accept claims for the sunfish on the grounds that they don't naturally feed on anglers' baits and are therefore not legitimately caught by fur angling means. Yet at the same time, the British Record Fish Committee lists the fish. Yeah, I've said it previously, I, I can't and, and won't comment on the standards applied by the Record Fish Committees because it's for them to set their own standards. I can only answer for the BRFC and the question has never arisen since I sat on it. And I don't think we've had a claim for a sunfish in that time. We see large sunfish arriving in our waters every year and a few are caught. But I can't remember, regardless of what the weeklies or the sea angling press tell me, I can't remember ever seeing a claim for a sunfish. And I certainly don't have one in my folder. I, I mean, I keep electronic copies of all the claims that are submitted since I've been on the committee and I don't even have a folder there for sunfish. So it's not a huge issue for me, but it's certainly an issue that we need to be looking at. I mean, I, I was involved many, many years ago before I was ever involved in any angling administration in running a competition where somebody could win a car if they caught a British record fish, and surprise, surprise, somebody did during the competition which was a roving sea match. And it's always been at the back of my mind that the value of a car is a bit too tempting, isn't it? So was it caught by fair angling means or was it actually taken in a net off a commercial boat and then one of the skipper's mates put the claim in and they got the car and they flogged it and split the money? I don't know. And I certainly wouldn't accuse them of doing that. But the reality is these things happen. But I wasn't aware until you raised it that the Irish Record Committee didn't accept claims for sunfish. Do you happen to know what the Welsh and the Scottish situation is on those? Because I don't. Not absolutely sure, to be honest. I don't think sunfish have been caught in Scotland, but certainly they have been caught in Wales. But I'm assuming if somebody's catching them, I mean, looking at the size of the mouth of these things, they've got to be fishing very small baits with relatively small hooks to land them, I would guess. Some of them are caught on baited mackerel feathers fished quite close to the shore, but whether that's actual feeding or a triggered response is another matter. Yeah, yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got a sunfish that may be a reaction feeder to the spur of a baited mackerel feather, and that's actually not that different from taking a salmon in fresh water, where we're constantly told salmon don't feed in fresh water, but they certainly bloody well get caught in fresh water. Now, it may be that they are only reacting to the bait going past their noses and snapping at it. But we will never be able to judge whether a fish is actively feeding or whether it's striking the lure or the bait out of frustration or some other mechanism that fish have. The fact that it is hooked 
and landed on rod and line, for me, if it's a record size, it's a record fish. I noticed in the coarse fish list, certain species, the skelly for example, which I've caught on many occasions, are still included but for historical purposes only. No further claims are to be accepted. But because of the rigidity of your own rules, should this not now also be the case with top and common skate? On the other hand, unlike the skelly which has full protection under the Wildlife and Countryside Act, Tope and skate can still legitimately be fished for and enjoyed. It's simply a case of the British Record Fish Committee rules failing to keep pace. Yeah, but the information in the question is effectively wrong because we no longer accept claims for both called tope and skate. And our list has, I think by now, been updated with that information. Although most sea anglers would know that tope may not be landed. As I've said earlier, we are looking at the whole list, the species on it, the information on it, how it's presented, and over a period of time, those things will all be reviewed, and they'll be reviewed, particularly in the case of sea fish, as the law on sea species changes, because more and more species are being protected for one reason or another. So, I think, in the old days, our ability to keep the website up to date was limited, whereas now Nick can go in from the office and change content on the website very easily and that'll get easier because we're about to or we're about to start working on a brand new website for the Alien Trust which is hosting the British Record Fish Committee stuff. So yes I accept in the past historical changes were not made as quickly as they should have been. I'm hoping that the committee in the future will be much faster in publishing the changes we have agreed in committee on the website so anglers know where they stand. In your published information you list five protected species of fish. As previously mentioned, the skelly is included for historical purposes only. So too is the Alice Shad. Why not then the Burbot, which while it is now considered to be extinct in the UK, nonetheless has an historical British record? And why the Sturgeon, which has possibly never been on the list, and the Vendage, which is never taken on rod and line? Well, Burbot are certainly considered by the Environment Agency to be extinct in Britain, but being thought to be extinct is not absolutely the same as being extinct. We've had a number of species that have been listed as extinct around the world, only to be discovered later on. I've got records of, of Berber being stocked as part of the efforts to revive the stocks. And as long as that's happening, Berber may be found in some waterways. I certainly don't want to say which waterways, because that's privileged information, and I wouldn't encourage anglers to be going out and catching Berber. Again, this is part of the review thing we're doing, is... Are we doing enough to protect species which are under huge pressure and legally protected by just saying we won't accept future or any more claims for that record? Or should we create another list of historic species which for one reason or another we will not accept any claims. And it may be that that's the way to handle it, so that you take these species off the general list and you put them onto a list of their own, so that you maintain the historic existence and size of fish that once swim in our waters, but you don't put species up which would encourage anglers, and increasingly in freshwater fisheries, the owners of fisheries, to import fish outside the licensing scheme, i.e. illegally, and insert them into waters to give anglers the chance of catching a record fish. I'm aware that there are some fisheries in the UK where the morality of the owner is not the sort of morality that you and I would probably seek from most anglers and some anglers are encouraged to pay a huge amount of money to go and catch specimens of a size that have never been seen on these shores legally. The Environment Agency has no information on imports or releases that would suggest any Berber are currently in our rivers. There are biodiversity action plan species 
the agency has a duty to investigate the possible return, but it's very difficult to investigate what would always be a very small population of fish. In terms of getting fish imported, we've got the Aquatic Animal Health Regulation disease restrictions, and it would be doubly challenging now because conditions now are far from suitable for them, so it's unlikely that they would ever go back onto the list as a live species. I don't know why the record was removed from the list. I'd need to go back on that. The sturgeon, I imagine, must have been on the list at some stage. Uh, why Vendace is listed again, I honestly don't know. But as I say, this is all part of the review we're conducting. We've got a relatively new bunch of people now sitting on the committee, certainly in terms of representing freshwater fishing. As an angler, I've always been aware of the Record Fish Committee, but I haven't followed its the intricacies of its workings over the years, I do know that there are a number of significant reviews of fish being taken off the lists because the evidence didn't sustain the fact the fish had been caught. Well, I've not personally gone back and looked at all those files, but in time I would like to think the committee will review the changes that have been made and try to come up with a list that is as full of integrity as it can be, and basically honest, without... I mean, frankly, there's been a lot of politicking within the BRFC in the last 20 years. It's something that has now stopped, and it's something I will seek to avoid in the future. Some of the decisions that have been made historically, I think were not made for what you and I might consider to be the most valid or the best reasons. And that, I think, is embarrassing, both in terms of the record list itself and the committee and its standing. And it's one of the things we need to address, that we need to look back and see what was done and why was it done and was it done for the right reasons, rather than was it done to maybe create an opportunity for somebody else to get a record listing in a species that has been in historic decline maybe for 150 years. We've got to do that. It requires us to go back into the records and determine if the decisions taken then are still valid today. That's going to be really difficult because we don't have an archivist. It's going to take weeks and weeks and weeks of research with each species to look back through all the claims and all the records just to tidy up an anomaly. But I think in time, I would like to feel, if we could find the funding, I would love to get those anomalies sorted out. Let's say we have a, uh, an even more extreme issue with sturgeon because... You can't stock sturgeon legally into any fishery. The fish you see in the angling press are either being held illegally or if returned, they're in breach of the conditions of the licence under which they're held because the Import of Life Fish Regulations requires that all sturgeon caught from stillwater fisheries should be removed. I mean, there's no question about it. They should be removed. They are generally not the sturgeon that swam in our rivers historically. And they're invasive non-natives and they should be taken out. Now, we're working with the agency constantly to try and ensure that everything the committee does is in line with their national policy. It can be troublesome at times when our view is that their national policy is wrong. <laughs> I think generally we are more conservative and more protective of our native fish species than even the environment agency. I think anglers tend to be like that. But I do think, you know, we are, we are making progress, but I certainly wouldn't want to go back to the days of listing a record wells and a record sturgeon knowing that that will encourage anglers and fishery owners to bring both those species in from oversize at more than record size and then give people the chance of catching them. There are lots of good fisheries out there who play the game legally and we're not in the business of giving those who like to play the illegal game opportunities to make money out of it. So 
I think that's where the committee is on that. So far we've looked at the basic overarching issues affecting fish recording, which if I'm honest, has taken up far more time than I think either of us originally envisaged. So what I propose to do here is to draw a line under that section of the debate, leaving it as a self-contained freestanding entity, then deal with the specific issues relating to the four subheadings of course, game, sea and mini-species records as a separate issue. My thanks then to Mike Healing for now for being so detailed and so candid on a range of issues which I know are very close to his heart. 